Welcome back to Bible Time, First Thessalonians, um, chapter one. Starting where we le- where we left off yesterday, let's read through the rest of the chapter, um, verse four through ten. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were, we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Father, in Jesus' name, please honor your son today, Lord God, through the through empowering your word, Lord, and the preaching of your word, the teaching of your word, and changing our hearts, Lord God, and turning us from our own dumb idols to serve the living God. Help us, Lord, today, and turn us, Lord. Change us, Lord, into the likeness of your Son. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I'm excited to be in First Thessalonians. I'm excited to be reading the Bible. I'm excited to be studying the Bible. I'm excited to be teaching the Bible. The Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And I thank God for his Word today. Now, as we have studied yesterday, we looked at the church of the elect. This is a church whose position in Christ is made plain by their work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope, by the extreme success that this church has enjoyed in the face of absolutely difficult times and persecution and tribulation, living in a hostile community amongst um, activists, anti-God activists that hate them and hate what they stand for, hate what they believe, hate what they preach, hate the people that brought them the gospel. And yet in just a short time, possibly as short as five or six weeks, I don't know how long it took Paul to send the first letter to the church of the Thessalonians, but we know that he left from there and um, was shortly in Athens and then sent to Athens and asked Timothy to come to him. I don't know how long. It'd be interesting to check how far it is from Thessalonica at Athens and figure if he traveled at um, 25 miles a day on foot um, which isn't a big deal to somebody that's used to traveling on foot, um, how fast he'd be at Athens. And that would give you some idea of get just kind of a general idea of how long it took him to get to Athens, how long somebody took to get back to Thessalonica. Um, let's just say if it took 10 days, and I haven't studied the distances on the map, if it took 10 days to get there and he was there 10 days and sent another man back and that took 10 days um, for Tim- to get back to Timotheus and Timotheus took 10 days to get back to Athens and told Paul all about it and Paul was rejoicing and within the next 10 days or so he wrote a letter how many days are we up to 10 days there 10 days to get there 10 days there 10 days to get back 10 days um, for Timotheus to get back to Paul and then about 10 days it'd be about 50 days so if you if you just kind of put throw out an estimate like that you're looking around 50 days after three weeks which is 21 days so roughly 70 days a little over two months anywhere from two to six months we could say fairly this church went from not existing do you hear me non-existent church it was not even present there was no church of Thessalonica and in the matter of two or three or four months maybe a little more they became a powerhouse church they became a church that was in in, in samples to all them in Macedonia and Achaia. They became in samples to churches that had been in existence for quite some time. And that is only possible through the power of God and the manifestation, therefore, of the election of God that he chooses who he will and that those who he chooses go forward for him is manifested here in this church. They're an in sample. They're, they're, they're a figure piece to be shown, to be lifted up to the other churches in Macedonia and Achaia and 
therefore they are a church to be lifted up to us, a church to be lifted up as an example, a church that we can look to and say, this is the epitome of what God wants to do in a local body of believers to take them um, from nothing, from serving dumb idols. Look what he said there in the end of chapter one. He says, um, that, and to wait for his son from heaven, or in verse nine, he says, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. How do you go from idol worshipers to the most, one of the most powerful and effective churches in an, in an entire region in a matter of months? Now, th- this defies all logic. This defies all method. This defies all opportunity of man and all work of man and all cunning of man and all teaching of man. They didn't get this through seminars. They didn't get this through intensive study. They didn't get this through discipleship. They didn't get it through small groups. They didn't get it through big groups. They didn't get it through services every day. They didn't get through get it through revival services. They didn't get it through tent meetings. And that doesn't mean that any of that is in and of itself wrong it's just to point out the fact that this church got something from God that you can't get anywhere else they got the power of God they got the anointing of God they got the work of of faith they got the labor of love and they got the patience of hope and they got it in the face of trouble in the face of difficulty in the face of persecution hallelujah to the lamb Now this then sets forth this church at Thessalonica in their position of in Christ as an example to all the churches that all you need is Christ. More about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. All you need to be successful as a Christian and as a church is more, more about Jesus. More of his saving uh, fullness. See, more of his love who died for me. More, more about Jesus. You need to know him better. You need to know him more fully. You need to know him more intimately. You need to walk with him. You need to talk with him. You need to be in the word and in prayer with the Lord Jesus Christ and that's really all you need now any other event um, like a tent meeting any other opportunity like a seminar any other class like a Bible teaching class may be helpful or useful to you as long as it points you to Jesus Christ and through it you draw nigh unto God but if it points you to man or if it puffs you up in your vain mind then it is actually detrimental and any of that and all of it will be and in fact that's what has happened to the church of america we have had everything but the fullness of the presence of christ for so long that we are starved and we are dead and we are naked and we are blind and we are miserable in the face of absolute affluence which means wealthiness we have bigger buildings. We have better sound equipment. We have more programs. We have church buses. We have seminars and projector screens to put them on. We have um, Bible study aids and beautifully printed booklets to pass out. We can put things up on the wall so that everybody can see it without any trouble. We have um, daycare systems. We have Christian schools. We have um, Sunday school classes. We have prayer meetings. We have special small groups. We We have um, awnings, we have tabernacles, we have outdoor areas and playgrounds, we have parking lots um, laid out and ready to be and and organized for our shiny vehicles so that we can drive to church from over an hour away without even breaking a sweat in our air conditioning. But what we have lost in our churches is the presence and the fullness of Jesus Christ. We've lost grasp of the reality of the position of the church in Christ and we no longer have a practical hold on who we are in Christ and who Christ is to us we have all the music we have all the instruments we have all the bands we have all the skills we have people who've gone to conservatories and studied until they're masters of their instruments and they can lead in worship and they can lead in song but what we have lost in our churches is the manifest presence and power of the risen Lord and Savior Jesus 
Jesus Christ. And without him, we can do nothing. So we find ourselves absolutely dead in the water in this nation, watching a nation turn its back on God and the church limp and lifeless and with no power to stand against the tide of evil. And it is because we have lost the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. This little church in Thessalonica had none of what we have today, but they had everything that we lack. It says the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They had their position in Christ. They had grace, the body of Christ, peace, the blood of Christ. We studied that out earlier. And they had everything they needed. Paul addressed this little upstart church as Paul and Silvanus. He moved right on to the next guy. He did. We've talked about this. He didn't even lift up his office to them. He didn't need to because they were in Christ and Christ being then in them in manifest presence and power made it unnecessary for him to even speak of his apostleship. He could move immediately into the meat of the word because they were ready for the meat. They wanted the meat. They desired the meat. There was no need to establish authority and jurisdiction and to battle heresy. Here, all he needed to do was to preach the gospel to him. Now you'll find in Second Thessalonians, when we get to the book of Second Thessalonians, there's a little more trouble that has eked into the church. They have, they've been troubled by some people that apparently forged Paul's um, handwriting and tried to um, persuade them that the resurrection was past already. We'll get to that when we study 2 Thessalonians. And we find that at the same time, they had some that were amongst them that were busybodies that would work not at all. So you find a couple problems have entered into the church at Thessalonica by the time that church has um, aged a little bit more. And that's how it usually happens. But in this church's start, it is absolutely above reproach. And we find this church on fire for God. God and evidencing their election in God. Now we're going to look a little bit at a few more of the verses we couldn't get to yesterday about this election in the word of God, about the call of God, and then we're going to dive into um, some of what that call of God is. Go to Philippians chapter 1. Go to Philippians Sorry, it's taking me a second to get there. I hope you have a Bible with you. And if you don't, then I hope that you can look these references up later. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Here he says to the church at Philippi, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now here we see that God is the one that begins the work and God is the one that performs the work. So salvation is of the Lord. Sanctification is of the Lord. It's all by faith. Do you remember the verse in Colossians that says, as ye have received Christ Jesus your Lord, so walk ye in him. That verse gives us the key to all Christian life that the same way you get saved is the way that you walk. You get saved being born again by a repentant, humbled heart before God, confessing of your sin and your inability to get to God and turning from the idols of your life, turning from your religion and your righteousness and your goodness and turning in faith alone in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross that he died for your sins and was buried and he rose again the third day and Jesus is alive. That's how you get saved. And how you get sanctified and filled with the Spirit is just as simple. You simply confess your inability to be a good Christian apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, your inability to fulfill the commands of Christ, your complete ineptness and failure apart from Christ, and then you and you turn to God in repentance from your own efforts to do what God called you to do and believe in faith that God will do it, and then you step out in faith trusting Him to perform that which He began, and then you do it. And you take the step and he empowers the step. Oh, wait a second here. This is the part nobody likes. You either want to have a religion 
where God in his sovereignty is responsible for absolutely nothing and you're responsible or everything and you're responsible for nothing or you want a religion where God has no sovereignty and you are sovereign and you choose to be saved and if you decide to choose not to be saved and you are the one that determines your destiny and you are the one that determines what's right and what's wrong with your understanding of the scripture so we basically have two Two different ideas, mindsets that Christians enjoy. The one sees God as sovereign and man is absolutely unaccountable and unresponsible in its extreme. And then there's all the variations and shades from black through gray to white and across. But the extreme there is God is ultimately the only one responsible for anything and absolutely sovereign and determines absolutely everything you ever do, including the breath you just breathe. He told you to do it and you're not really responsible. And the other far extreme of the spectrum is that man is absolutely responsible for everything. Man determines whether or not to be saved. Man determines whether or not a soul down the street gets saved and they completely deny the sovereignty of God. The one wants to relinquish responsibility and the other wants to take full control and both are wrong. God is in control, but God who is in control has sovereignly with authority commanded all men everywhere to repent. And God in his sovereign authority has placed responsibility on man and nobody likes that. Oh, I'll take the responsibility if I get the authority too, and I get to be the master of my own destiny, and I get to decide where to go and what to do and what to say. Yes, I'll take the responsibility because I am perfectly capable of ordering my own life. Oh, no, I don't want the responsibility at all because I recognize that I'm not the authority and I recognize that I'm not able to do everything that exactly like I should and things have been getting out of control. So I don't want to acknowledge my responsibility at all and I'm going to throw all of it back on God and I'm going to quote those verses that make me feel good about God being blamed for everything I've ever done wrong and if I'm saved or not saved, it's in the hands of God. If I'm sanctified or not sanctified, it's in the hands of God. Do you see the thought processes? That's the thought processes. God wants neither. God has called you to be a soldier. I remember a young man I talked to about following the Lord Jesus Christ. He claimed to be saved and I began to probe and ask him questions about his fruit and the evidence of his election. And the man, the young man became somewhat offended with me and I said to him um, that the Bible says to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he looked at me and said, wait, wait, I didn't sign up to be a soldier. That's our problem, isn't it? That's our problem. You don't want to say, yes, sir. Nobody wants to say, yes, sir. You either want to abdicate your responsibility and crawl off in a hole like a little spiritual sloth, or you want to take full ownership and sovereignty away from God and place it in your own hands. Both are wrong, and we're going to see that today. Here in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now let's turn in the Bible to chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Well, that I love that verse, and it is a wonderful verse. But look at the verse above it before you go running off too far with it. It says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed. Wait a second. Obeyed? Obeyed what? We are, we're freeborn people. We don't have to obey anybody. He says, wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Both are there. Both are true. Let me give you something that will help you today if you will take it to heart. The Bible is full of contrasts. 
in the book of Proverbs, and this is a rabbit trail if you get hung on it, um, so don't get hung on it. But in the book of Proverbs, it has two verses back to back. One of them says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. And the next verse, or vice versa, I'm not sure which one comes first, but the adjacent verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. So one verse says, answer not a fool according to his folly. And the next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly. Which one is right? You've got to get this and you've got to get it now. If you're going to move forward with God, you've got to get this. Both are right. When you come across a contradiction in the Bible, God put it there on purpose and he put it there to force you to consider what he said and find the common link that makes both possible and to do that you have to study the bible do you hear me today the sovereignty of almighty God, the election and calling of God unto salvation, the predestination of a saint, the foreordination of God and the foreknowledge of God are all in the Bible and absolutely accurate. But at the same time, often in the same context, is the evident, apparent, mandated responsibility of man to obey the commands of God and to choose to do so voluntarily. It is side by side in the scripture. And God puts contrasts in the Bible to force you to lay aside the vanity of your fleshly mind and humble yourself before God and search the scriptures for the answer answers the bible does not contain all knowledge some of you think that's heresy the bible contains the knowledge god wants you to have and a lot of it a lot of things in the bible are open-ended truths you say what do you mean by that i mean that they are truths that god has included in the word of god by inspiration of the holy ghost they are too big they are infinite truths and they are too big for a human mind to fully comprehend but nevertheless god put them in the bible and he gives you however much information that he wants you to have about it let's say he gives you the equivalent of um, if you're baking a cake you put in a cup of flour and um, a teaspoon of salt or whatever you're putting in there you put in your ingredients by measure and God gives you the measure of understanding in the word of God that he wants you to have in order to bake what he wants you to bake in order to bring you from point A to point B God gives you just the information he wants the danger is that whenever somebody gets a hold of the flower and figures out flower is in the Bible, all they want is the flower. And it's even worse with the sugar. When they get a hold of the sugar, all they want is the sugar. And they just want to keep putting more and more and more and more and more and more sugar. But they won't ever go back and put in the flour. And the ones that have the flour won't put in the sugar. And the ones with the salt won't put in the flour. And on and on it goes. This is why we must rightly divide the word of truth and come to the Bible humbly because these truths in the Bible are open-ended, infinite realities about God. That means that the Bible is going to leave things unsaid and there is going to be a depth of understanding about some of these truths in the Bible, like the Trinity, that God the Father, God the Word, and God the Holy Ghost are one. There's going to be some truths in the Bible that God states to you without giving you every detail of how it works because it literally is too big for your mind. And what what happens is as soon as you in your vanity of your mind look at me today in the vanity of your mind you think that you've got a handle on it and you want to start um, pushing it and and you go beyond what the Bible says 
and you start to get into speculation about what the Bible says and overemphasizing a truth in the Bible without bringing balancing scriptures to bear. You will tread into things that you have not seen vainly puffed up with your fleshly mind and you will fall into error. The word of God is how we know God. How many of you knew that already? Without the word of God, I would have no authority to say anything about God. I would have to shut my mouth and fold my hands and sit there and listen while the animus told me that the spirits are God. I would have to sit there and fold my hands and shut my mouth when the Jehovah's Witness says God the Father is up there but God, the, but Jesus Christ is not God the Son. He's just the Son. And I'd have to shut my mouth and I wouldn't be able to refute that lie. But because I have the word of God, I have an answer for every man that asketh me the hope that lieth within me. The moment I go outside the bounds of scripture with my own vain mind, I begin to tread into things that I have not seen and that I cannot see. And the only possible outcome is a philosophical doctrine that is not based in scripture. Do you hear me today? And when you have a philosophical doctrine that is not based in scripture, you are in error. Error. That's wrong. No, the Bible is of no private interpretation. And if you come up with doctrines about God and about the Bible that cannot be directly and clearly substantiated with Scripture, you are wrong. I don't care how good it sounds. I don't care how consistent it sounds to the rest of Scripture. I don't care if it seems like it would be consistent. If you cannot back up what you are saying with scripture, balanced scripture, then you are wrong and you are in error. So we're moving on here. Um, go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to see this again. Um, Colossians 3.12. Here's practical election. It says, put on, therefore, as the elect of God. In the same sentence, did you hear that? Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Well, if you're holy and beloved, why do you need to put anything on? He says, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, we are to put on bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And he goes on and on and on and on, telling the elect how they're supposed to act, how they're supposed to think, and what they're supposed to do, because they're the elect wait a second are the are they the elect or not is God sovereign or not if God's sovereign why do they have to put anything on God put it on them already wait they're both true God not only called them the elect but he told them what to do as the elect listen to me election means the appointment to an office that otherwise could not be attained apart from that said appointment do you hear me? Uh, to be elect by God, to be called of God, means that God Almighty has selected you to be a Christian. That's the raw reality of election. It's a choosing, an act of God choosing you before you could choose anything yourself. And some people will, get, will hang up right there. They're done. Out. Well, I'm sorry. It's in the Bible. You cannot deny it. It is in the Bible. So here is God choosing you. But when God chooses you, God chooses sovereignly to enlist you in his army and tell you what to do. And God sovereignly chooses as a sovereign God to let you make decisions and reap the fruit of your decisions. 
the idea that man has a free will in the sense that man chooses his own destiny is absolutely unfounded in scripture, but that the man has the ability by God to choose the master of his will is found in scripture. The Bible says, yield not your members instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. And the idea, he says, um, if you serve, know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey. His servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And of course, that in its context is to scripture. But the context or the concept that a man can choose who to obey is all through the scripture. But you don't necessarily get to choose what happens after you obey. God is sovereign. Did you wake up until the sun to rise today, young man? Who did? Well, God told it to rise, but God didn't wake up because he never sleeps, did he? Kind of a trick question. Did you, young lady, tell the moon to fly through the heavens and stay close to the earth? Did you, young man, tell God one day, I want to be a human being, and I want that mommy and daddy put me in their home? Or did God choose your home? You see, almost nothing in life is up to your choice. Almost nothing. We have very limited choices in life. A lot of times we have more choices at the local ice cream bar than we have in life. People say, oh, I want to buy a new house. And they start looking and they have some requirements and they pretty soon find out there isn't a house that meets their needs and meets their budget and meets their location that they want it to be. And pretty soon they have to settle for something else that they didn't really want. And that's reality of most people. Most people don't pick the car that they always wanted to drive. They look at the options that are available and pick it. And this is the same with God. God in his sovereignty has laid out options before man, just like he says in the Old Testament. I set before thee life and death. Choose life that ye may live. God in his sovereignty gives man choices about things to exercise their will upon. But God in his sovereignty has never and never will give man unlimited sovereign will. Which most people mean whenever they say free will, which is absolutely non-existent in the Bible. Colossians 3.12 there says, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Wow. Put on therefore as the elect of God. Go to 2 Thessalonians quickly. <coughs> 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 14. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the context here is in contrast to those in verse 11 who God will send. It says, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth whereunto he called you there's our text we looked up by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our lord jesus christ <clears throat> now in the face of all of this incredible text about those that god will send a delusion that they should believe a lie and be damned and then it speaks of you who we are bound to give thanks all the way to god for because you wouldn't be saved otherwise the only way you can be saved is is the um the effect he's giving here brethren beloved of the lord because god hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation and belief of the truth and then in verse 15 after saying that we were called by our gospel therefore brethren stand fast therefore brethren stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught whether by word or our epistle so here are people who have been chosen from the beginning um, sanctified by the spirit believed the truth called by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our lord jesus christ who are then endued with responsibility from god to walk in obedience to the word of god <clears throat> 
That seems like a contradiction, but it's not. Again, in 1 Thessalonians, um, verse 5, it says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also empowered in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. I'll just give you a hint there. That's the call of God right there. The gospel of God coming in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. That is the call of God. Whenever God makes the gospel real to the heart of a man, a woman, a child, through the power of the Holy Spirit, um, through the presence of the Holy Spirit and through the assurance that the Holy Spirit gives that this is in truth the word of God, that is God calling someone to salvation by our gospel and they better move. God's not obligated to do that. God can send you a strong delusion instead if he so chooses. And I've um, witnessed and heard of, I've heard of cases where people have rejected the call of God and God has sent them a strong delusion. It is not uh, that altogether of an uncommon thing where the power of God is present. When the power of God is not present and people hear the gospel, then God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is not calling their hearts, and they cannot be saved at that time, not because the gospel is does not have the power to save, and not because they don't have um, any responsibility before God, but simply because God Almighty has to do the work. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, whenever you start pointing your bony finger around and telling people, well, you weren't really saved because the power of God wasn't there, you didn't hear the call or whatever else you want to do, you've erred and gone off the deep end and you're doing the work of the devil. So get out of that stuff. Just recognize the fact that without the power of God present in the preaching of the word of God, the call of the gospel rarely, if ever, goes out. There are instances. There are instances. I remember hearing of a man who was in a rock concert and all of a sudden the truth of the gospel came bursting into his mind and his heart and he couldn't even stand being in that room anymore. He had to run. I remember another man who told me of his conversion and he was playing guitar in a rock and roll band. He was one of the backup guitarists and they had a week long gig going or a whole weekend gig and they were in their second of three nights and they were in in the middle of a long, drunken rock and roll party and he's up there hammering away on his guitar and all of a sudden God came down where he was at and the music was horrifying to him and the atmosphere was horrifying and the sin all around him was horrifying and the fear of God fell on him and he became in terror for his soul and realized beyond a shadow of a doubt that the gospel that he'd heard and the hell that he'd been taught about was real and he put down his guitar and walked out in the middle of the venue while his band was fussing at him and telling him he was a traitor for leaving them. And he walked out and went home and sat in his house, if I remember the story right, in darkness for about two days. The man was um, basically legally blind anyway, but he sat in his house in darkness, no lights on. He just sat there. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know where to go. And then the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for us according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day, burst into his heart and mind in, a, in the power of the Holy Spirit and much assurance and he understood the gospel and trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as his savior he had heard the gospel before but until God makes it real until you can believe it with faith and much assurance of the Holy Ghost um, you're dead in the water and that's just the reality of the gospel that's the reality that we are, we are so sinful and wicked and our hearts so deceitful that even when exposed to the truth of the gospel, we will make light of it and, they, and the preacher will seem as one that mocks to us until God the Holy Spirit does something far beyond any operation of human methods or tricks or, or um, even ability to speak, which I'm struggling with right now. Even an, a great orator can't save a soul. It takes the Holy Spirit of God. Second, First Peter chapter one. Go there quickly. <coughs> Excuse me. First Peter chapter one and verse two. He calls these people the elect of God. Now we noted that Christ um, preached the doctrine of election of the call of God. Luke preached it. Paul preached it. Peter preached it. We're going to look at that here, and then we'll look at Second John. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul an apostle 
or I'm sorry, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Look at verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, there's a whole other camp, and we're not even going to stop here for sake of time. There's a whole other camp that tries to say that the foreknowledge of God is not related to the election of God. Well, I'm sorry, the Bible disagrees with you. You are wrong. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I have to say it that way. I'm not sorry that you're wrong um, as long as you get right. But you're wrong. If you don't believe that the foreknowledge of God has anything to do with election, then you have failed to read your Bible enough. Because right here it says that these Christians are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And the word according means that it is that it ties in to the that the foreknowledge is that which determined who would be elected. That's what that means verbatim. According to the foreknowledge of God. When something is according to something then that which it is according to determines that which it is. Is that confusing enough for you? I'm sorry that it is, um, and I didn't say it very well, but the according to the foreknowledge of God directly ties the election of God to his foreknowledge. Now you say, well, that doesn't make sense. How can God be sovereign and yet tie his election? If it's not really election, if he looks in advance and sees what people, I don't know how it works, but the Bible says it. And if the Bible says it, it behooves us to believe it and obey it. Why do we have to try and explain everything? Why can't we just believe the Bible for what it says? And it says right there, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And by the way, that ties together with Old Testament types and the reality of God's treatment of Abraham. He says, I know Abraham that he will teach his children after him. And God selected Abraham because of what he knew about Abraham. And then you argue and say, but the good things in Abraham were all of God. So how can that be have anything to do with it? Because without God working those things in Abraham, he wouldn't do the good things that God foresaw him doing. I don't know. Now we're getting off into the deep end of speculation and philosophy. And you've got to just go back to the Bible. What does the Bible say? And then believe the Bible and move on and humble yourself and stop trying to figure it all out. Just believe God. Believe the word of God. Take it at face value. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Second John. Quickly. Second John verse 1. The elder unto the elect lady. How about that? Speaking of the church. <clears throat> and her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. We're not going to get into the how we know that that is the church. If you don't see it there, I don't have time to help you with that today. But it's, it should be obvious that speaking of the church. So here's the church referred to as elect, which ties together with the church of the Thessalonians being in their position in Christ that we have been studying. Um, and now let's see Jude verse 1, just a couple pages over. Um, Jude verse 1, Jude the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, get this here, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. How about that? All of those are operations of God. The reality is that eternal security as a doctrine in the Bible is only possible through the foreknowledge, election, calling, and preservation of God Almighty. Now, if your salvation is dependent on what you do, then it's perfectly understandable that you would read many verses about enduring to the end and that kind of thing and come up with this idea that you can lose your salvation because you're the one that got it to begin with. But if you understand that salvation is of the Lord and that God not only chooses but preserves. Did you see what he said there in the book of Jude that God not only preserves but God calls and if you begin to understand for just a second the power of God in salvation then you cannot even begin to entertain a doctrine 
of a temporary salvation that does not exist anywhere in Scripture. Jesus said, he that believeth on me shall never perish. And if I remember right in that passage, he said, believest thou this? And I ask you today, believest thou this? Look at Jude verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever amen so the preservation of the saint is what you need to look for and not the perseverance of the saint do you hear me today it's not the perseverance of the saint that's going to get you to heaven. It's the preservation of the saint by the power of a sovereign almighty God who called you by our gospel, who foreknew you, who elected you, who chose you in Christ from the beginning, hallelujah, and sanctified you by his Holy Ghost, and then you believed. What part do you have? You responded favorable, favorably when God moved in your heart. And you might sit there and say, well then, can you even really say that the man believed? Yes, because the Bible says it. Can you really say that the man would have been lost if he hadn't believed, if God had chosen him? He can't, listen to me, God can manipulate the will of people. It says he would send the delusion to some people so that they would believe a lie. How much more can he send the truth and the love of the truth to the heart of a man? Salvation is of the Lord from the beginning to the end. And you have a part in salvation. And if you will not do your part, listen to me today, it is evidence that you are not elect. But if you will obey the gospel, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you keep his commandments, if you follow him, then it is evidence that you are elect. And if you're lost today, this isn't for you. I want you. I was just thinking about this the other day. The as far as the scriptures go, um, well, let's just this phrase that we said the other day: to claim that God in grace elects people without their knowledge or voluntary assent is unbiblical, and that is true. It is unbiblical to say that God just reaches down and grabs people by the hair and jerks them up to heaven without any of their own knowledge of what is happening or their voluntary assent. You are not saved if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and keep his commandments. That's Bible. You will know about it and you will follow the Lord if you are saved. It is folly to say otherwise. And I asked the other day, it, uh, I made the statement, it doesn't matter who said it unless God said it. And then I asked you, show me in scripture a case anywhere in the Bible where someone was saved without any of their knowledge or voluntary will. Now, you could try and go to the child that David lost, and we don't know how old that child was, an infant apparently, and you could say, well, David said that he would see the child in heaven, but you cannot prove to me that that was without that child's assent or voluntary will. You cannot take your speculation and with your speculation disprove clear scripture. Do you hear me? You must stand on the scripture. The scripture is all we have. The word of God is the sole authority for doctrine, for reproof, for exhortation and righteousness that the man of God may be, might be perfect, truly furnished unto every good work. And if your speculation is going to override the scripture, then you have no foundation. And you may not even be one of his. If that carries on, your errors will become evident and you may become a total heretic. Now the statement or example, find me not only an example, how about you find me a place where in the Bible we're instructed to tell the lost that they have to wait on God to save them. Where in the Bible? I want you to tell me if there's a spot in the Bible that tells you to go and preach to the lost that except God elects them, they'll be damned. Where does it say it? Do you hear me today? You show me a place in the Bible that tells you to tell a lost sinner you have to wait on the call of God and you can't be saved until God draws you so you need to go back and wait for some kind of weird thing that you're not going to explain to them because you can't explain it because you don't even know what it is. Listen to me today. We are called by 
by our gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is by the power of the call of the gospel that God saves men. You and I are commanded by Almighty God to preach the gospel. And when somebody comes to you and says, I think I'm lost and I need to be saved. And if you are so audacious and ignorant as to say to them, go back and wait on God to call you. I feel sorry for you. And I feel sorry for everybody you're talking to. The Bible says, repent and believe the gospel. The call that goes out to people is to respond to the gospel. We understand that the work of God in saving souls is a sovereign work. We understand that without Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. We understand that we are chosen in God from the beginning. We understand that we are sanctified to salvation by the Holy Spirit. We understand that we are elect, appointed, chosen to obtain salvation by God Almighty. We understand that it takes the illumination of the Holy Spirit to open the mind and the heart to the gospel. We understand these things to be true, but the gospel never tells you to preach that to the lost. The gospel tells you to tell the lost to flee from the wrath to come. The Bible tells you, maybe that was just John Bunyan's book. Where's that verse? Flee from the wrath to come. The Bible talks about the wrath to come and the Bible does give you the principle of fleeing the wrath to come. Then the Bible tells sinners to repent. The Bible tells sinners to believe the gospel. The Bible tells sinners to seek ye the Lord while he may be found. The Bible tells sinners, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest to your souls. The Bible says, ask and ye shall receive. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened opened unto you for everyone that asketh receiveth and he that seeketh findeth and to him that knocketh the door shall be opened unto him and whether or not you are elect whether or not you are chosen of God is the least of your concerns you need to right now if you don't know if you're saved bow your knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and say be merciful unto me a sinner and God will save you right now if you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus you say what about the call of God if you believe in the Lord Jesus it's because he's calling you if you have a desire to turn from your sin to God you are being called move don't wait today is the day of salvation don't put it off it's the worst thing you can do if God is dealing with your heart run to the cross amen How did Paul know that this church was elect? Maybe we should just end it there. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word. There's four things here that show that these people were elect. We're going to look at this as the evidence of their election real quickly. Wrap up um, just kind of a survey of these final verses of chapter 1. In verse 5 and 6, he says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, which is the call of God. As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. The response to the gospel was evidence of the election of these believers. They received the word. The Bible says in John chapter 1, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to as many as believe on his name. The reception of the gospel is manifest evidence of election. Let's just get it back to practical reality and take these biblical terms out of the theological cathedrals that they've been locked away in and make them plain and simple that they may run that read them. If you believe, receive the word of God unto salvation, you are elect. Hallelujah. And this takes the burden off the so-called soul winner 
because he understands that God saves the souls. Our job is to carry the word to the sinner. And their response to the word will show you whether or not they are elect. And you don't have to worry about it. You just see it and you see the evidence of it. And you can marvel in the sovereignty of Almighty God. And you can bow your knee and humbly admit that you know nothing and can do nothing apart from Christ. Because you can share the gospel with more skill and talent and oratory skill than you have ever done it in your life. And watch people walk away scorning the gospel and then turn around in discouragement and despair and just give a half-hearted effort to somebody you think will never listen and watch them break under the hand of Almighty God as the Holy Spirit of God calls them to salvation and the Father draws them to himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ illuminated in their hearts with much assurance in spite of your weakness and feebleness and you'll say, woe is me, I am undone for I am a man of unclean lips and I stand in the presence of a Christ, holy God, and salvation is of the Lord. And it's no longer about making spiritual notches in my pistol and saying I'm some kind of superhero soul winner. It's about glory to God Almighty and the Lamb receiving the reward of his sufferings. They received the gospel in much affliction. They received the word. This was evidence of their, of their, of their election. Not evidence of Paul's prowess. Not evidence. Do you see that this is deflecting the praise to God? Not evidence to Paul's evangelistic band. Not evidence to his logistical skills. Not evidence to the material and the efficacy of his material. Not, effic- not evidence of the power of his method. But evidence to the power of Almighty God who chooses and who seals and who preserves and who calls and who elects. And here in verse 7. You have the redistribution of the gospel. This is not the limp wristed, wobbly need Calvinism of today in the so-called grace churches that run around saying nobody really knows in essence and there's some kind of privileged person and they evidence none of it. The evidence of election here was followed not only by a reception of the word but by a redistribution of the word. Look at it here. Are you elect? Then you carry the gospel to others. There's no way, no two ways about it. The elect don't sit on their hands and let the world go to hell in a handbasket. Look at verse 7. So that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia for from you sounded out the word of the Lord not only in Macedonia and Achaia but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak to anything. We don't have to tell people you're elect because you're living like it. You're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. Everywhere, in every place, your faith is spread abroad. From you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. The evidence of their election was seen in the response to the gospel. The evidence of their election was seen in the redistribution of the gospel. Thirdly, the evidence of their election was seen in their repentance by the gospel. Look at verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We're not looking for shallow professions of people who will pray a prayer and then go back to their idols and back to their wickedness and back to their life. The election of the church of the Thessalonians was evidenced by their repentance by the gospel. They believed the gospel and they turned from their old life to a new life. Old things were passed away. All things were become new. And then we see, fourthly, the rest in the gospel. We see their, uh, their response to the gospel evidence, their election, their redistribution of the gospel evidence, their election, their repentance by the gospel evidence, their election, and finally, their rest in the gospel evidence, their election, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. 
praise the Lord. We bless his holy name. Father, take this message and use it for your glory. Dispel doubts, Father. Remove fears and obstacles and, and high theological teachings, Father, and doctrines of men that have made simple things in your word muddy and hard to understand. Lord, I pray that you'd open our understanding, open our hearts and minds, and give us a practical, real, raw, living life of the elect, Father, and evidence the election that you have done, choosing us from the beginning, Father. Make it evident, Lord, through the sounding forth of the gospel and the dissemination of your word and the change in our lives and the rest that we have in your gospel as we look to that blessed hope, the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to him we ask all this would bring glory in Jesus' name and glory to God the Father through glory to his Son. Amen.